This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, uh, I saw an interesting uh, picture on social media over the weekend. One of those letter signs uh, with the replaceable, uh, removable letters and such. Uh, and the sign said, Donald Trump. And then underneath it, Putin America First, spelled P-U-T-I-N, which, of course, uh, is the Russian leader. Uh, many uh, have said over the weekend that uh, his comments uh, supporting Putin were a little offline and really doesn't give his own agencies much credibility. Here's what Trump had to say in regard to uh, his relationship with Russia. What I said there is that I believe he believes that, and that's very important for somebody to believe. I believe that he feels that he and Russia did not meddle in the election. As to whether I believe it or not, I'm with our agencies, especially as currently constituted with their leadership. All right, here's what uh, CIA Director uh, John Brennan had to say. By not confronting the issue directly and not acknowledging to Putin that we know that you're responsible for this, I think he's giving Putin a pass. All right, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. So uh, is the president being played by Russia and China? You know, give the guy a parade, off he goes? More than a parade. <laughs> the trip through Asia has, uh, has been very spectacular, particularly in China. And, of course, uh, Macron in France has done the same a splendid display for the president. Is he being played? Well, there's no way to actually know that, is there? Uh, clearly, opinion in America is split on this. Uh, the Trump administration has made a few points. First of all, uh, no, we're not being played. Uh, not at all that the secretary treasurer says that. But the main thing they're saying is we can't keep... Uh, Dealing with this in terms of Russia, we've asked them. They said no. Now it's time to move on. And they, they come right back to their old line. Not a single vote was changed as a result of whatever it is the Russians might have done. And now they're saying uh, quite reluctantly, well, yes, we accept the intelligence agencies headed by the people we have put there. So the current leader of the CIA, not the ones that you quoted, quoted who were uh, yeah, former. under Obama, uh, the Mike Pompeo, uh, has also said, yes, I stand behind my agency's earlier conclusion. So what uh, Donald Trump has just said is I am accepting, rather quietly and grudgingly, obviously, uh, my own CIA director's word on this. So how can you play both sides of this fence? The other comment made, there's a number of comments going on here, but another one is that uh, there's no ambiguity, according to Brennan and uh, and Clapper on this, the former heads of the National Security Agency and, and National Intelligence and the CIA under Obama. Very reputable, solid people. Uh, if you watch them, that's, <laughs> they're solid as a block. Yeah. Um, but uh, what's, what's being said now is there's no ambiguity, according to them, and what the president is doing is providing ambiguity. Mm. So that's one of their charges. But there's a lot more going on here, I think, uh, one of the things that hasn't been noticed at all, because we always pay attention to, the, in a sense, the circus, <laughs> rather than actual policy that's being made. I think you and I have talked about this before in terms of domestic politics in America. But there was actually a joint statement between Russia and uh, America released, and it was over Syria. Now, I t I've read this uh, statement, and it's a very interesting one. 
Syria is, after all, a big ticket item. And what Donald Trump has just said is, I don't want to talk anymore about about meddling because you know that undermines his credibility. <laughs> um, you know, I got elected fairly. It's not because of Russian meddling, but I'd rather talk to the Russians about Syria and about North Korea, and that's not uh, unfair mm-hmm. for any leader of America. This joint statement has said a few important things. Uh, one is that they've agreed to work together in terms of bringing Assad into the process established by the United Nations, called the Geneva Process, and uh, Russia has agreed to deliver him. Now, we can talk about whether that's going to happen. The second is that, and this is the most important thing, if anything came out of all of the conversations we've been hearing, it's this one. Russia and America have agreed uh, in writing, we'll have to see it in practice, in writing, to carry on not only their deconflicting zones, that is, they've agreed to uh, uh, calm things down in certain areas in Syria, but also they've agreed to stay in communication. They've agreed to stay in touch so that American forces, American-backed forces, and by the way, we're part of that, uh, will not actually run into Russia and Russia-backed forces. Now, we don't know if anything in that statement is going to hold up, uh, nor do we have any reason to think <laughs> what we've been hearing, coming back to what you've been asking about, whether even what we've been hearing is the case. Uh, Donald Trump has said, I've raised this with him in uh, Vietnam, in Da Nang. Interesting place, by the way, Da Nang. America fought over that. Hmm. And uh, uh, no, he's, he's, he said he didn't do it. And I believe, and then you've heard in your introduction, I believe he believes it. He didn't say... You know, late earlier he said, "I believe it," and, but he then backed off from that. But um, all of that is uh, then countered by uh, Russia, which said, "We tried to have a formal meeting, and the, uh, the Americans have blocked it." And the press secretary for Mr. Putin has said, uh, when asked, "Did the issue of meddling get raised in the three short bilateral conversations, just chats at uh, in Denang?" And he said no. So Donald Trump is saying he raised it, and Putin's press secretary said they didn't even talk about it, Scott. Hmm. Uh, why is this? You talked about you brought up Syria and 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 the discussions uh, that both had in regard to that. Why now? Why are they having this discussion now? Is it about moving uh, towards a solution, or some may say this is another dis- distraction? No, I think if there's any substance to come out of everything we're talking about, it's, it, it has to do with the only thing that's uh, policy-related. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a question of sanctions, of course, and Trump said, look, I've applied sanctions, and uh, they've got enough. And maybe he in- indicated maybe too much, but he didn't want to go there. No, the only substance to come out of all this was to actually talk about where deaths are uh, happening and where American and coalition troops are, including Canada again. Uh, in Syria, and Iraq, and um, I think it was totally disingenuous. This press release over Syria, and uh, by, by the two of them, was worked out by the foreign ministers of the two states in advance. But in fact, Russia is calling the shots there. Uh, except for the fight against ISIS, Russia has intervened decisively. They've shifted the balance in the war. They have saved Assad. They are now. They're saying, you know, we want to bring the. Geneva process into play, but actually they have a parallel process, the Astana process, 
Uh, they are actually running the peace negotiations on the ground because they're also bombing from the air. So alleged war crimes have been committed massively by Russia in shifting the power balance, pushing America out of any real influence on the future of Syria. But at least there's a press conference, I mean a press release, hmm. as part of the meetings that were just held relating to that issue. Could it be terrorism that will unite these two powers? You know, logically, Scott, it should have happened a long time ago. Russia has... We've had these discussions in the past. I mean, you would think it would be the one common denominator. You would think so, because Russia has excellent reason to fear terrorism. Yeah. Uh, They've got a huge Muslim population, which feels aggrieved in many ways. Chechens have been involved in uh, helping ISIS. So Muslim... Islamic terrorism coming back, you know, fighters may return to Russia. They have excellent reason to be concerned, but in fact, up until very recently, all of their concern was uh, bombing Assad's opponents into submission. That's the kind of people that the West has been backing, have been basically militarily obliterated. A steel wall uh, of fire has been brought down on them. So um, now now they are turning their attention to ISIS. Uh, and good, but also America and its coalition partners, including us, have actually been carrying the can on, on fighting ISIS, uh, with the, the Assad regime apparently giving them a pass for many, many years. So is Trump onto something here by trying to bromance Putin, or again, is this a, a, just another distraction for something that they may have on him down the road? There's been allegations uh, of that that are rearing their ugly head again. Well, we have a gigantic question mark over what you've just raised. No one can answer definitively, what is it between these two? No matter what, when you look uh, in the campaign, in the, in the platform of the Republican Party, and everything that Trump says about Putin uh, since his nomination and even before, it's all been very soft on Putin no matter what. Ukraine, uh, Crimea, etc., etc. Uh, there's no doubt at all that Donald Trump is soft on Putin, whether that's proud of conviction or whether it might be a conviction. He's really the only one. He's really the only world leader he's shown any love to. That's correct. Uh, And we can speculate. Uh, You know, there's this famous dossier that is is going around. Will we hear anything more about that, Elliot? I mean, is there something there or is this just all poppycock? Well, again, you've asked, that's two questions. Is there something there? And will we hear more about it? It's likely we'll hear more about it because there are, the Mueller investigation is going on. There's, there's two, uh, both the House and the Senate has investigations going on. I suspect the FBI is still carrying on independently their investigation. It might indeed come up. It's going to be examined. They've called the author of it uh, to one of the committees of Congress, uh, a fellow named Steele who used to work for British intelligence. Now, will anything come out of it? That is a total unknown. But it's one plausible explanation as to why we have the American president being soft on Russia is that Russia might have something on him. But all of this is speculation. We have no facts. Okay, so let's assume that Russia has some sort of trump card on him, (laughs) some sort of whatever it's a, a dossier, pictures, everything that everyone thought it could have been. What will that mean for him? What does that do to him? And... How does Russia play that card? Well, they're playing it, if that's the case, they're playing it all the time. That is, Donald Trump, the whole reason we're having this conversation, uh, apparently has 
been soft on Trump on, on Putin again uh, in public, and that's leading to the dispute between the intelligence communities up until you know very recently and the president, and also the Republicans in Congress, many of them, so who are much tougher on on Russia than he is. So we don't know uh, where all this will end up, but you know there is a hunt on for collusion. It, we know absolutely, apparently, that the Russians did interfere in the American elections, as they do in other places. And by the way, we have troops now in <laughs> Latvia that are likely to be the subject of cyber sliming by the same kind of uh, engine motor uh, cyber attacks. So the whole question of will America work with Russia or not work with Russia is a perennial one. But it has a special, remember that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, said we're going to have a reset with Russia. We're going to work with them. And she had a big red reset button as a prop. So she, America keeps trying to find a way to work with Russia. You can't really ignore them. But Russia is acting in ways that are clearly inimical to the interests not only of America, but to uh, democracy and to the West. Uh, former CIA director uh, John Brennan went on to say, quote, I think Mr. Trump is, for whatever reason, either intimidated by Mr. Putin, afraid of what he could do or what might come up as a, as a result of these investigations, either naive ignorance or fear in terms of what Mr. Trump is doing vis-a-vis the Russians. Which one of those is it? No one knows. But all of them are plausible. When you have somebody as serious as Brennan, this isn't idle chatter from, you know, somebody yeah. at a bar someplace. Uh, this is somebody who has been in charge of American intelligence and sees all the agency's reports. So a person of substance has put on the public record the possibility that the American president has, uh, is compromised in some way or another. And I think that's a very serious matter, which is now uh, going to have to play into the, to the uh, discussion going forward. Where does this leave the Republican Party? At what point do they say, do they put the country's interests ahead of their parties? Well, it's part of the Republican Party. John McCain has been, and uh, Lindsey to a lesser degree, have been very firm on this. They're the ones who are saying America, uh, precisely as you put it, uh, the the Trump administration is is soft on Russia and they're putting uh, America. In fact, we can go back to the quote you just gave from Brennan and uh, Clapper, they're saying America is is in peril because of the Trump administration's behavior toward Russia, and that's echoed by some important voices in the Republican Party. What about, uh, again, they have both said, Clapper said, I do think both the Chinese and the Russians think they can play him. Is Trump smart enough to know what he's doing here? He can play them and yet still talk tough and get what he wants? I suspect Donald Trump thinks he's playing the Russians and the Chinese. Yeah. Uh, and that he's doing so for the best of reasons, for America's national interest, as the president him, defines it. So we, we don't know where all this will go. If, if the Chinese, for example, turn out to be very helpful on North Korea, and if Russia also joins in on being helpful, and remember, they both voted with the U.S. and the other members of the Security Council, to impose sanctions on North Korea, then we'll have to look back and say, you know, who's playing whom? You know, Donald Trump has had a success here. He's used American bluster <laughs> mm-hmm. as a weapon. So uh, all of this is in the realm of the unknown. The character 
of the president, the manner of expression, and all the other things we know about him and how he campaigns, all of that leads to the suspicion that his ego and his self-regard comes ahead of all other issues. But history will have to decide this as matters evolve. Hmm. Why not? Uh, why didn't North Korea sh- uh, launch to have a little mi- a missile test while he's in Asia? Wouldn't that have made a point? Well, the silence may be very indicative of Chinese influence. Yeah. It may be indicative of the success of American policy in saying, you know, be careful here. Nobody wants a spark that's going to lead to a war. In fact, the North Koreans have been unusually silent in terms of missiles and testing and uh, either bombast continues. But there's been no... uh, no major actions by North Korea in a, in a while. Is China putting a thumb on them? Hmm. Is, is there real fear in North Korea? You know, there's one, one view going around that what Donald Trump is doing in Asia, and he's spending a long time in Asia, is actually putting together a coalition behind the scenes. All we see is what's in public, but there's a, a, a thought that what he's doing is putting together a coalition for a preemptive attack on, on North Korea, that may have occurred to the North Koreans, and that may keep them quiet. Hmm. Will we ever know? Um, probably not factually. We just have to watch behavior. So, moving forward, how does this play out with Russia? Does, are we, is, is America pretty much in a holding pattern until we find out more from, from the investigation, the, the Mueller investigation? No, the world isn't standing still. The, what's going on in Syria, what's going on in, uh, around the world, Russia continues to act very aggressively in making Russia great again, to coin a phrase. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if they have little red hats like that or little fur hats or something, but uh, <laughs> Putin is clearly on a campaign to make Russia great again, despite the fact he doesn't have an economy to support it. Uh, but he's using the assets very, very strategically to do so. That isn't going to stop while investigations go forward. There may indeed be breakthroughs in the various investigations, starting with Mueller, who's got a, a posse on the hunt of crack uh, prosecutors. So there may be a change there. But they could come up at the end of the day and say, we haven't found anything that goes to the level of criminal activity regarding the president himself. There may be other things. They may also veer off into uh, what you and I think have talked about in the past, not actual proving of collusion, which may or may not be easy to prove. Hmm. They may have a smoking gun. If they don't get a smoking gun, there's lots of other areas they're wandering into now involving money. So conflict of interest. Uh, who knows where that could lead. There's also a sudden change in the atmosphere over, uh, it's a sharp and sudden change in the atmosphere over uh, men and women in America. Mm. Suddenly, mm. behavior that yeah. was, oh, well, that's, that's just how guys behave. And, right. You know, and sometimes a crime's committed, you might get. But now that, that uh, hashtag Me Too is changing the... Will that come home to roost? That's a very valid point. Who knows what's going to be out in front of everyone uh, by the time the next election rolls around. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always fascinating. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always more to talk about. We'll be in touch. Don't worry. (laughs) You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Sexual assault come to the forefront again in recent months. Louis C.K., George Tacky, and as well, uh, now Richard Dreyfus too. I remember it was Richard Dreyfus's son, I believe, who was uh, accusing Kevin Spacey. Uh, it just becomes even larger, and you wonder how far down into the root of Hollywood uh, this all goes, starting with Harvey Weinstein, uh, Spacey, uh, American Senate candidate Roy Moore now. Uh, to talk more about all of this is Lorraine Somerville, auto writer, post-medium, other load column in the Hamilton Spec, which is the reason we're calling her today. The column is for men who don't know the difference between flirting and sexual assault, and Lorraine is with us now. Lorraine, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I appreciate this. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. Is it appropriate now to ask you what you're driving, or is that out of line? <laughs> don't even start that crap with me. Um, <laughs> I have a new Murano, actually. Quite lovely. Oh, my. Yeah. So tell us about this car. Well, I had the Kashki, which is brand new. Right. Like that's their new one, and the uh, Murano's a little bit bigger, and it's been around for... Yeah, it's been know, around for a few years. years. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Been well. so, no, nice little crossover. All right, man, you are going all over the place here. If you're not writing about cars, you're writing about uh, <laughs> sexual flirting and assault and such. Uh, let me ask you this very blunt question over what has surfaced, and it certainly isn't the first time. We go back to Cosby and blah, blah, blah. Uh, what are your thoughts about this round of uh, revelations? I wish we could stop having rounds and yeah. that it would just put in place a change that is so long overdue. I read about my mother enduring this, you know, 75 years ago. Talk about that. Well, it used to, I remember my mom was a secretary back in England, and she got you know chased around by her boss, and there was yeah. more to it than that. It was bad. But I remember I was working in an office when I'm 17, like I'm a summer student from yeah. university, and the boss is in there. I was in a unit that had all the uh, AVPs and everybody, like it was a big stuffy unit. It was mm -hmm. in Toronto, it was a big place, and they were they were all over you, not all of them, but enough. Yeah. And it was super inappropriate. And they grab your butt, they stare down your shirt. They actually physically I, touched you. Yes. Mm. And I came home and I finally worked up the nerve to say to my mother, you know what, I, I hate this. Like, these were old men. They were the age I am now. They yeah. were ancient. And I remember she just said to me, she goes, well, you're a pretty girl, so get used to it. Wow. How did, that, how did that sit with you at the time? At the time, it was like, that's. If I told my father, he would have taken a shotgun into work, yeah. I swear. Mm. So I'm sure I told the parent that I thought would give me some useful advice. Um, but that was her experience in history, and she was not alone. And we all know that. Women have put up with this crap forever. And men are assaulted, too. And, and every industry, every industry, yeah. when someone has power, they're going to misuse it. And it happens. And most men are decent. And when people start saying, oh, you women, just get over it. No. Can you imagine someone putting their hand, like grabbing your crotch and looking mm -hmm. at you saying, do you want to be on next week's schedule for three shifts or four? I've had a woman do it to me. I, I, I believe it. Yeah. I do believe but, it. But, you know, I've, I've only ever had it happen once in my life. Yeah. And, and, and uh, here's the common denominator I have with women who have had this. I was totally stunned. I didn't know how to react. Well, I just was totally stunned. And even though it happens all the time, we freeze. And yeah. when you're hearing, when people go, leave the room. Why don't they just leave the room? You don't have to yeah. sue for that. Or, or they say, that's not like getting raped. We want a rape victim to have, unless he jumped out of a dark alley and was really ugly and you didn't know him and he punched you in the head and stabbed you, people don't count. That's, not, that's the perfect rape victim. Yeah. Everyone else is just whining. And what they don't understand is like, 
when they say, we'll just leave the room, you have to go, okay, if I get out of this apartment, do I have to wait for an elevator? Hmm. When I get down the stairs, what's waiting out there for me? How do yeah. I get home? Is he going to come after me? Yeah. What's See, that's the happen? difference. As a guy, I didn't feel, um, I, I, I felt violated. Yeah. But after the shock, just sheer shock of it all, um, but I didn't feel for my safety. And I and, think that's the difference, is that I, I was just stunned and thought, wow, if I had done yeah. that, it'd be a whole different story. Um, but I didn't feel that I was, I, I felt violated, but I didn't feel in danger, I guess. And that's the difference between men and women. It, it's very much part of it. And the fear is, it, it can become for your job. I mean, you know, I, I'll lose my job if I speak up. That, yeah. we all know that. Any woman listening to this right now has been in a situation where it's like, I'll be the one that whines and complains. And guess what? You don't get the job, or you don't get the promotion, or you d- you just get written out of the script. Like yeah, you're gone, yeah. and that's no matter what. You don't want to be the one that does that because it's going to cost you. But physically, the fear level. Like I will not get an elevator with a guy I don't know. Yeah. The elevator opens. There's a guy there. I go. I'll catch the next one. I don't. So has this changed the way you view relationships over time? Yeah, my father kind of raised me to be very distrustful, which was, in some ways, a big disservice. Um, you haven't met me, but you know me. I'm kind of yeah. mouthy, and mm. I take up a lot of space, and I'm quite sure. Of I don't. I don't think I'd want to wrong you, Lorraine. <laughs> well, I'm a good person to have on your side. I mean, I'll put it that way. Flip <laughs> the table a little bit, but um, it doesn't mean that I'm not vulnerable because physically, yeah. a man the same height as me, like I'm five seven, five eight, like I'm a. I'm good, like I'm yeah. strong. Yeah. But any guy the same size as me, who you would consider probably small. Yeah could physically overtake me. Yeah, yeah. And that's just a fact that women know. We know that. And yeah. we get cornered and someone goes, why didn't you run away? And again, what are you running to? Yeah. And who's behind you? And you don't know. And the fear is real. And, oh, parking garages? <sighs> yeah. I hate them. I do the auto shows. I yeah. have to park. It's like I'm yeah. parking as close to the doors as I can. I only park under a light in a parking lot, you know, in the day. So yeah. when I come out at night... Women go through this roster in their head, a checklist yeah. that you guys never even think of. No, I think about this when my wife goes downtown <laughs> all the time and parking in places like that. You just, you, yep. you know, you just be aware, man, be aware. So what do you think, let me ask you this, what do you think about what your mother said way back when? I asked you what you thought about that at the time. What do you think about that now that you, you're more experienced, more mature? Well, the difference now is with my daughters-in-law, like my son's girlfriends, when we have these discussions, I'm like, you do not put up with that crap. Women coming up, we're getting better at telling other women that, but we need women in more positions, especially in politics and in Hollywood and stuff like that, like visible, um, that you're not alone and you don't have to put up with this. If a man puts his hands on you or a woman, it can be a woman, anyone who is abusing that power, and I don't mean um, someone goes, oh, well, you know, two students are goofing around on each other. No, if one doesn't, it's a power situation. It's not about sex, it's about power. And when there's an imbalance there and you feel you can't do anything, I want to tell the girls, stand up and go, get your hands off me. And we teach our kids this. Yeah. Stand up and say, stop touching me like that. So mm. we, we're changing. Whereas my generation was, be good, get along, don't make noise. And, we, and women especially, don't cause a problem. Mm. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't, rumple everything up just get along get along and is it really that big a deal and if uncle so-and-so hugs you a little too long never ever tell your kids to give someone a hug or a kiss your small children never 
You never force. Well, you know, like I, someone. yeah, I, I'm, you know, uh, I have a teenage daughter and friends come over and, you know, they're always hugging my wife. It's like, you know what? I just don't, I, I don't want to put myself in that situation. They're just too old to be doing that now. You just never. can't, but, you can't do that anymore. But actually, especially when they're two or three, like especially when they're tiny, because you're telling them someone can overrule their natural instinct to yeah. not want to touch that person. Yeah. So where do you find the fine line between hugging somebody and, you know, you, that's what your column's about. For men who don't know the difference between flirting and sexual assault, what's well, the difference? if you go to work every day, you don't hug people. Like mm-hmm. your coworkers, yeah. your, your equals, yeah. even if you're the boss. Yeah. Not it's not like you haven't seen them for 100 years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's not appropriate. And frankly, if you're not sure, and you should always maybe not, you know, be not sure. So, do you mind if I hug you? Yeah. And I've had people thing, ask me that, yeah. Because well, we're so cautious now, I guess. Well, I mean, we are highly sensitized at the moment, which is fine. I mean, I hug my girlfriends. Like, I'm, I'm a hugger. Yeah. But you send off signals. And, man, if you hug someone and they're, they act like they're in a straitjacket, guess yeah, what? It's yeah. not welcome. No, no. And yeah. now there may be consequences if you grab their butt as you hug them. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's as gray as everyone is. No, I mean, hu- you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're copping a feel of someone's rear end, that's pretty yeah. obvious. That's not yeah. a hug. That's not, yeah, we uh, know. And know. the fact they've shut up thus far, maybe they're getting yeah. a little stronger and are going to call you out on it. And if you're worried that there's stuff coming down the pipe, good. <laughs> so uh, you, you know, well, especially in Hollywood, like this is this has got to be rotten to the core. This isn't especially something everywhere. I've, th- I've worked in a lot of male-dominated industries. Yeah, I worked in construction. I've worked in lots of places in Hamilton. I work in the auto industry. Yeah. If you're worried right now, good. Yeah. Now we had this discussion when Bill Cosby was in the news. What's different now? Part of it is. Cosby assaulted women, and so many came forward, but nobody, it's like nobody wanted to believe, and I, I, feel, oh, I feel for these women that keep speaking up, and then no one believes them. It's like, where's the proof? Where's the proof? It's like, how many people do you need? You know, like, you come in drenched. It's raining outside, you morons. So part of it is the numbers, but there is a, a change. And again, the other thing is, not all men do this. This mm-hmm. is not the majority of men. Most of the men we know are decent human beings who mm. would never in a million years go into work and grab their secretary's boobs. Yeah. Like, they just don't do that. So men are starting to go, you know what, this is not okay. And I don't need the argument, I have a wife or a daughter. I don't care. It, it's just not the way we treat other people. You know, if a guy walks around punching people in the head, you can stand up and say, well, that's not cool. Yeah. Well, if they're assaulting people, that's not cool either, or, you know, speaking in a certain way. Or I used to run race teams with uh, motorcycles. I made them take down the posters in the trailers of the half-naked oh, yeah. girls. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're such a spoil sport. I said, no, we have sponsors coming through this area. Yeah. It is not professional. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, do what you want on your own It's time. not your back, uh, back garage <laughs> or anything, you know. Nope. Uh, what, what, what will keep this moving beyond the next news cycle? Why, you know, will this story grow? Will it be like the Cosby story, it gets shoved to the back burners? Or no, will, or no, will issues just keep coming out here? No. You know what's going to come out here is more and more names people there's everyone knew about louis ck everyone knew about weinstein everybody knew about Cosby. this this was not a secret mm-hmm. and everyone knew about john gameshi everyone knew this stuff but everyone shut up because nobody wants to be the first one to pull out the you know when you're playing uh, jenga you know yeah, you're wondering yeah. when it's gonna go <laughs> more and more names and louis ck he didn't apologize in his non-apology but he said i did it yeah and the only way they're going to start coming back from this is to you know, to actually say that, but you're going to see, and you're seeing people step away. Look how fast 
they dumped space. Everyone went, nope. So their, their outlets, their suppliers, their agents, the people that rep them, they know they're toxic and that this is toxic. That showed me Spacey went from hero to zero in 10 seconds. Boy, did he ever. So did Louis. All of them have yeah. become untouchable. Weinstein's corporation got rid of him immediately, and his name's on the company. So uh, like, Hollywood... Hollywood going through a metamorphosis anyway. Uh, we've certainly seen, um, you know, uh, the sort of the anti-establishment rhetoric in the sense that, uh, you know, the big networks and the big studios uh, are taking a hit from the smaller companies, the Netflix, this, that, and the yeah. other. Uh, could this be a total changing of the guard? It just, you know, out with the old? Because, again, this, is go- this has been going on for Decades. This has been going on since the early days of these big studios. There's some horror stories that are about to drop involving kids. Yeah. And it's going to get really ugly and really nasty really fast. And so this is just the tip of the iceberg. And the stuff that's coming is worse than the stuff we've seen. And you can't feed an industry that is so narcissistic and has so much money and concentrates the power in just a few hands and not expect this kind of crap to happen. Aren't they all guilty in some way, though? They have to be. How can, like you said, everybody knows about this. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, what's the line? Um, You're just, if if you do nothing, you're as guilty as someone that's doing it. And so we're all complicit if we don't step up and say, don't do that. And to all these great men around us and most of them do this if you see it stop it Mm -hmm. you know it's like don't speak to her that way or don't put your hands on the kid that way you know what over the years lorraine i can't see that i can't say that i've seen it a lot i can't so this must be going on where other people probably don't witness it because they would call the person out would they not sometimes but you know what i i see i've been in situations where the other men are in the same position I am, right. which is they'd be threatened right, right, or their right. job is yeah. like if you've got a mm. boss who's a bully mm. and is doing things, everyone in that setting yeah. is under the same threat. So you kind of look at the chick and go, I'm so sorry. And you yeah. give them that look, which means I'm on your side, yeah. except I'm stuck too. Yeah. Yeah, and so <clears throat> sometimes that makes you feel better as the chick. You're going, okay, at least someone gets it. I'm not crazy because we get gaslit like crazy and told that we're nuts or it didn't happen when it did. So, you know, having some backup is nice, but I think it's time everyone went, you know what, stand up. <laughs> like, stand up, stop. We, you know, have a job because you're good at the job. Feel, feel safe to do your job, you know, and not... I remember working in retail, and I, had, I used to wear ties all the time. Someone goes, oh, that's pretty fashionable. It's like, no, I have to do my shirt up to the neck. Yeah, really. <laughs> and if you look down my top, you saw my feet. I had no boobs. Like, I don't even know what they were looking for. Oh, my. Yeah. What will this do to the moral compass of America or Canada or the rest of the world? It would be nice to see a reset in the relations between men and women because, again, most men are decent, and so are most women. There's squeakers on both sides, and I get it. But the damage is deep and lasting. Whether somebody has physically attacked you or not, the bruises are not always physical. So the, the last women are driven out of industries where they could have been really good because it's not worth it. Yeah. And you hear this in every industry. Yeah. It's like, I couldn't take it anymore, so I left. So we're, we think of medical industries. Think of things where it could have been, you know, where would we have been yeah. if some of these great minds had been encouraged instead of stomped on and threatened? Mm-hmm. And again, not just women. But, you know, any, any people that get driven out of something that they could have been really great at, I'd love to see a, a reset. My problem, especially in the States, is the moral compass gets set from on high. 
mm. right now on high. They have no moral compass. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I can think of a personal anecdote of, a, of a, a, a woman who was an executive at an oil company and left for the same reason because yep. couldn't handle the boardroom with all the boys. I can tell yeah. And they all like, ooh, boys will be boys. You know what? Yeah. No, boys will not be boys. That's not an answer. Yeah. I'm raising those boys. And if I thought they were pulling that crap, <laughs> no, no, we, we can do better. We can raise better. We can demand better. And we can protect each other. I'll tell you what the comment was uh, in a meeting in, 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 and had a meeting with clients in the future. And somebody said uh, to this woman, go ahead, do what you can to get the deal. And you can imagine where the, where the uh, yeah. conversation went from there. I've heard that. And, uh, yeah. How did you raise your boys being aware of this? Um, you, you have to respect women. You have to. And I told them that the world is not always fair. I remember one night, Christopher, if you have a second, he was 18 and a bunch of them were going out. And he's a big boy. He's always been a big boy. And he came home and he was angry because one of the girls had gotten drunk. She was like 16 and she'd mm-hmm. been drinking wine or something. And she's mouthing off mm-hmm. the boys across the park who were older, like older than the kids in this group. And there's yeah. a bunch of them. And I said, what'd you do? And he goes, oh, because I could have killed her. Like she's going to get us all beat up by these yeah. older kids. Yeah. But they got her home, and I said, yeah, because that's what you have to do. It's not always fair, but they couldn't leave her Yeah, yeah. because she wouldn't have got home safely. Mm-hmm. You can get her to the door, and you can knock on the door and say to her mom and dad, she's your problem now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you can rat her out. Yeah. But he knew that he couldn't leave her because yeah. that was some of the kids were voting for that because yeah. they're like, she's a mess. It's yeah. her fault. And he knew it's not always fair. Yeah. That, is, that doesn't mean it's not right. So I said, you have to make sure... She gets home mm-hmm. safely. And as the big kid, it often fell to him to be the one who right. said, this is what we're going to do. So I think you, they were raised, like I've been, we have, I've been divorced 21 years, like their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, and it's like love is wonderful, but you have to respect women. Yeah. And you have to put them on a pedestal, but you have to respect them. And I think that's, you raise your, I don't think you raise your boys much differently than your girls. Demand other people respect you. Demand they respect other people. And I don't know, I, 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 I wouldn't have raised princesses if I had girls, you know, that mm. men have to do everything for you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think women, you know, should want that. Be, be strong, be self-sufficient, but you should be able to do your job without getting molested. <laughs> Lorraine Sommerfeld has been with us, Motherload column in the Hamilton Spectator, the column uh, this week for men who don't know the difference between flirting and sexual assault. Great column, Lorraine. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked at length on this show about uh, drugs and addiction and the opioid crisis uh, specifically and how uh, we are seeing um, society going through an epidemic, an opioid epidemic. Uh, in which, uh, you know, young people, and, you know, here's another thing, there I am stereotyping as young people. It's like this can affect anybody, all walks of life, every uh, economic uh, situation, every class, uh, every age group. Uh, and here's another perfect example of that. Uh, Stephanie Bertrand used to call herself a functioning addict. Her cocaine addiction turned into an opioid addiction, and it sort of went downhill from there. She is now in recovery and has begun an outreach program to help others get the services they need. To talk more about all of this, Stephanie Bertrand is with us from Community Support. She is with us now. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, no, thanks for the opportunity. I like to be able to get awareness out there and let people know what's going on because it is an epidemic and it's killing fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, 
we need to do something. Tell us your story. How did you get involved? Well, <laughs> involved in which? <laughs> involved in um, drugs. Well, I started out, I was 23 years old. I got married. I had two kids. And I just, I felt like I wasn't, I was inadequate. I wasn't adding up. I wasn't a good wife. I wasn't a good mom. I was, I felt like I was failing. And so being working in a bar, I was around drugs all the time. And uh, eventually I just, I got offered some and I used them. And when I, when I, the first time I used, everything went away. I felt awesome. I felt great. I was invincible. And I got addicted to that feeling pretty quick. What were you using? I started out using cocaine. I was using cocaine for about two years then. And then I switched to crack cocaine for about four or five years. And then after that, it turned into an opiate addiction. How did you get from crack cocaine to opioid? Um, lack of options, I guess you could say. Um, my, I was with a, a man at the time, and he originally had started as a crack addict as well. And eventually his addiction turned into an opiate addiction, so we stopped using that. And pills were more prevalent, and opiates were more prevalent around, so that's when you can't beat them, join them. And you, you talked in this, uh, in this article, uh, um, I was a functioning addict. So what was your life like then? Honestly, it was chaos inside my house and normal looking on the outside. It was like the typical white picket fence. My kids went to school. I was doing stuff at the school, volunteering. None of, none of the teachers or the principal or anybody had an idea of anything that was going on. I managed to keep everybody out and not let them know what was going on. I kind of functioned. I was paying my bills still. I was making sure my kids still ate. They were the first priority no matter what. Even though I was an addict, my kids were still my first priority. Or at least I tried to make them my first priority. So they had food. They were taken care of. They went to school in clean clothes. Nobody had any idea anything was going on. And what age? You said you were 23 when you started this? Yes. And when did you when did you finally end? And are we ever, you know, is it ever over? I mean, does it ever end? Well, not entirely. I will always be an addict. I will always have the mentality. I will always struggle with it. Like, I've, I've been clean for over a year and a half now, and even still, I can't watch movies that have people doing coke in them because it, it triggers me. Yeah. And I, so I have to be very, very careful about the places I go, the people I hang out with. Like, I've got to watch because it could happen again. Um, so, roughly kind of maybe, so roughly 23 sorry. to 35, you were, that, was the, that was where you were heading downhill? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I, I would get clean for a couple months, a year, whatever, and I'd be doing good, and then something would happen and I, I would end up falling back into it. So what's different now? I got rid of the ex. Hmm. He was a lot of the time he brought it in. I, I was codependent, so I wanted to help him, but I couldn't help myself, let alone help him. I had to, I had to work on my own program. And addicts, when, you, when an addict gets clean, it's because they want to. They have to want to because it's a lot of work, yeah. and you can't force somebody to do it. So... For me, I wanted to get clean. I watched what it was doing to my family. I watched what it was doing to my kids. My whole family knew something was up, couldn't quite put their finger on it. So they were all worried, and I, was, I, I didn't want to make them worry anymore. And my kids, like I said, it was starting to affect my kids going to school. The school was starting to pick up on stuff. My life became unmanageable. And so when life becomes unmanageable, you've got to change something. So, uh, so when did the kids find out, or did they find out? My kids didn't really find out until afterwards when I had to sit down and talk to them a little bit about it. Um, yeah. Of course, age appropriately, I have four children, 14, 12, 8, and 3. So my 14-year-old knows a little bit more than the 8-year-old would know, but right, they, right. they know mommy was sick and mommy's mm -hmm. getting better. 
And um, what's it like? How, how do you how do you present that message to them? It's probably more difficult than explaining sex to them. <laughs> mm. um, I've basically, when it comes to my like the eight and the three year old, mommy was sick. Yeah. That's the bottom line. They yeah. don't really need to know any more than that. Right. With my 14-year-old, I've pretty much, because he's in high school, and kids are starting these things sure. way earlier nowadays. So I've been a lot more open about it with him and talked with him and told him, like, this is what this drug is. This is what it does. This is what it can do to you. Do you remember seeing this? Mm. Because, of course, you know, kids being in the house, they still see stuff as much as you try to yeah. you try to hide it. They're still going to see things. So he's he's kind of got a um, better education on this than most kids because he's seen what the effects can do. He's seen there be no food in the fridge. He's seen us not getting off the couch. He's seen a lot. Hmm. How did they find out? They found out when their, well, the stepfather and father were kicked out of the house, was kicked out of the house. They found out then. Hmm. Uh, and you have four kids now? Yes. And how do you move forward with this, uh, saying that you have, you know, relapsed a couple of times? As I mentioned before, what's different now? What's, why is it different now? My attitude. I mean, when you have the right attitude when it comes to this, you can do anything. I don't let my addiction define me. I don't let it control me anymore. I control it. So no matter what, I know where I can go, what I can do, what, what people I can hang around with. And I'm very careful about that. I, I make sure that I, I keep good boundaries so that I don't I don't end up in that spot again. So you have to, this is something, a, a battle you have to be consciously aware of all the time. Pretty much, yes. And are you... There's con- a couple of days I forget about it here and there, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. How concerned are, your ki- are you that your kids may fall into the same uh, pattern that you did, especially with, because lot, lots will say that addiction uh, can be hereditary. What are your concerns I've, with that? I wholeheartedly believe it is hereditary. There's been instances of it in my family as well, and I think that kind of had a little bit of a push towards me using myself. When it comes to my kids, I'm, I'm always worried. I'm always worried because two of my kids have a double dose of it. Their father was an addict too. So I've, I try to give them as much information as I possibly can at their age without, so, so that they have all the information they need. As they're growing up, when, if they have the right information, they can make better decisions. And I think when we were growing up, they told us drugs were bad. They didn't tell us why. They just told us drugs were bad. Mm-hmm. And they gave us a whole bunch of, of bullshit stories that, you know, we, we believed. We didn't know any different. I told my kid, my oldest one, I've told him exactly what I went through mm-hmm. when it came to the withdrawals and things like that. And I know that that's something that scared him. And I'm, I'm, I'm figuring if he has all the information, he's not going to make the same mistake. I can only pray. How has, yeah, at least you're having the discussion, right? Uh, how has this changed your life moving forward? Getting clean. Well, I'm definitely not the same person I was five years ago. Um, now I've actually got... A, a purpose like I was wondering why I was put on this earth what was it for because I had no education I no real marketable skills at this point I didn't know what to do now I, I've got experience I can help people I can help other people that are in my position I can help them get to the, the, the organizations that'll that'll help them get houses get them off the street get them off drugs I have the ability to do that so tell us about what you are doing now 
Well, I started a charity organization of my own, and it's basically, as I was going through the process of getting clean, I found there's a lot of holes in the system. So you're either dealing with counselors that are overworked and don't have enough time, or you're dealing with a counselor that's had no experience with drugs whatsoever. Um, these are things that, you know, I think, I, I think they deterred part of my recovery, and I've had to go to different options because something didn't work. I'm thinking that um, what our charity does is it helps people to find the, the, the program that will suit them better, I guess you could say, because there's a lot of different options you can use. Some people are great with NA. Some people don't like um, NA. Some people are great with AA. Some people don't like it. So we want to help people to find the program that's going to work for them because that's, part of, that's the part of the success, right? Are these programs about getting you off drugs or are, whether it's alcohol or, or what have you, um, is it about getting you off that with a plan, a program, a, a, you know, a 12-step or whatever, or is it trying to figure out what got you there in the first place? Um, well, because is, is, it about, is it about people that are just going out and having a party and great time and it just goes too far, or is it about people looking for something else? I mean, clearly you were looking for something else. Oh, and it's, 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 these programs are for everyone. Like, they have many different programs that address all of those things. Now, whether it was just a party that started and you just kept going or whether it's somebody like me that, that had issues, when you get into a 12-step program, step four is actually going through and doing an inventory. So you're going through your entire life and you're finding what you think, like what you've done, what you've seen, and then it gives you an idea of what it is that you're trying to fix. So how much uh, does your advocacy help you with your recovery? It helps me a lot because I, when I was an addict, I wasn't a great person. I did con my family out of things. I did go into my family's houses and take change out of a jar or something to that effect. You know what I mean? I may, have not, I may not have done it to people I didn't know, but I did do it to my family. And there's people that I've hurt that I can't, I can't apologize to now. Hmm. They're not here anymore. So for me, it's kind of like giving back to the community. There was a community there when I needed the help, and they were so generous to give it to me that I want to be able to give it back to the community when they need the help. How difficult is it for you to tell these stories now? Or is it? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. It depends on the situation. Um, I've Actually, this week has been kind of a, a big week for it. I've been talking a lot about it, so it's gotten quite easy now. But the first couple of times, I, I never really thought back over it or some of the things that had happened. And so when I was writing it out to, to Emanuela and, and to other people, I really realized how bad my addiction was. Like, I never realized how bad it really was. Hmm. So sharing the story makes you come to terms with your own life. Absolutely. How, you said that you, you got help and then would stay clean for a while, then faltered. Uh, how, why did it stick this time, and, and what was the trigger to make you realize that, oh, wow, i got to do something here? I woke up one morning, looked in the mirror. I was pale. I was sick-looking. I felt like hell. Um, I was working in a bar. I was doing a job I hated, absolutely hated, and I wasn't making any money doing it. And I just, I, I, my life was unmanageable. I hated my own life. I looked in the mirror, and I couldn't look at the person I had become. And that made me want to change. I, I watched my I looked at my kids. I saw the way my kids were looking at me, and it, I knew it was time to change. It was it had to change, or I'd been dead. What do your kids say now? The ones that are old enough to understand it. What do they say now about your experience and what you're doing now? 
they are so proud of me. I have, one of my kids every day tells me, "Mom, we are so proud of you. This is something good that you're doing. Keep it up." Mm. We're happy that you're you're. I'm up in the morning with them. I make their lunches. I help them get off to school. I'm there to help them with their homework now. That's all stuff. And they tell me thank you all the time. Thank you for getting clean, Mom. Thank you for getting better, Mom, so that you're here for us. How inspirational is that? Uh, it breaks my heart and makes me smile at the same time. <laughs> hmm. uh, how, did, how did those around you deal with this when they knew what your situation was? Um, at first, a lot of people didn't know what to say to me. I get treated a lot of the time like I'm dying or I'm sick because they don't know how to how to approach me. It's funny, like at family get-togethers, they, oh, how's that drug thing going? Are you doing good? <laughs> it's kind of... It's an awkward <laughs> moment, is it? Yeah. And Wait, which again, I mean, that, really that, that just... That, that all centers around the stigma around the whole thing, though, right? I mean, they don't even know what to say to you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The stigma that you receive as an addict is unreal. Because even when you're trying to get help... People are still looking at you like you're this horrible addict that, that pretty much killed your kid and threw him in a dumpster. Like, the way you get treated is unreal. And these are by professionals that are supposed to be helping. What advice do you have for others who have traveled down your road and maybe not where you are right now? I'd have to say to people that are in my position that there is hope. You can do it. There's help out there for you. And if you can't do it yourself, you can get help. There are people there to help you. We talk, don't be afraid to ask for it. We talk a lot about uh, the epidemic, the opioid uh, epidemic that we're seeing going across the country um, and, and the amount of lives that it's ruined and, and lives that it's taken. Are there a lot of success stories like yours? Do we talk enough about the people that made it, the people that recovered? Well, honestly, I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of it until we really started noticing the crisis in the first place. That's when people started coming out of the, out of the, wood, like out of the work and putting their story out there. Um, before, it was nobody wanted to talk about this. Everybody just wanted to sweep it under the rug, and nobody wanted to talk about being an addict because if we were, even if you were in recovery, again, there was that stigma. So everybody kept all this a lot, like, hush-hush. Now they're starting to open up more about it, and I'm, I'm happy to see it. I am. You talked about before that you did this to escape. You did this. You weren't sure what your purpose was. Um, do you still feel the need to escape? Absolutely not. I've, I mean, of course, there's always stress. There's always things that are going to happen in life. Life is hard. <laughs> but it's all in how you deal with it, and I've learned better ways to manage my stress and better ways to deal with it. How do you do that now? Um, well, it could be anything from video games to singing with the radio at the top of my lungs. Mm. I've, I'm creative. <laughs> mm. uh, do you find that you deal now better with life's stresses and just the day-to-day activities that go on and problems that every family has? Do you find that you deal with that better now than you did uh, prior to all of this, like when you were in your mid-20s? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When you, when, first off, i got a couple more years of experience now, and I know a little bit more about life. I've become very resourceful over the last couple of years. So when problems do come up, I'm usually right on it, and I'm able to fix it. And that's where, that's where things differ, because before, I, instead of trying to fix the problem or come up with a solution, my solution was to go straight to the pipe. Right. That was the end of that. Hmm. Now I'm actually looking for ways to fix it and finding options to help me. Uh, what about when it comes to uh, intoxicants? Do you drink now? Do you smoke? Do you? W- what's life like for you? I don't drink. 
Mm-hmm. And that's like, like, that's a, it doesn't really have anything to do with the addiction part of it. I never had a problem with drinking, but I choose not to. Um, but it's not it's, a way, it's not a way you would escape. Oh, no, no, actually, I'm not a very big fan of it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. If I have too many beers, I'm sick. I don't yeah. really like that. So I, I don't, you know, I don't do, I don't drink. As for smoking, I smoked up until about four months ago, and then I started vaping, mm-hmm. and I've been off of cigarettes for four months now, and I feel a hundred times better, and I'll probably drop off vaping in the next couple months. Wow. How do you explain all of this? You must feel like a million bucks. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it feels really great, and I feel like I'm doing the right thing and that everything's going well, and then there's sometimes where I look back and go, wow, how did you even make it out? Yeah. So... Sometimes I'm in awe of my of my situation and wondering, like, wow, how did you make it out of that? When you're feeling down and out, what do you do? How do you cope now? Oh, that's what my kids are for. I, I get them, I get them singing with me, or hmm. or playing, or dancing, or doing something. But I look at those kids because those are my reasons. Those are my four reasons for even staying alive. Stephanie, if people want to find out about uh, more about you and your organization, where can we go? Well, we have a Facebook group. It's called Hope for or Angels for Hope right now. Uh, we are changing the name, unfortunately, because we found out that it's taken. That's what I mean. And we're in the infantile stages of getting things together. Um, but I have a Facebook page myself. It's Stephanie MB. So feel free to message me or friend me. Uh, I'm always open to meeting new people. And I'll always look in. The, uh, I don't know if you guys have 311 out there. We have a service down here in Windsor called 311, and it has all the city um, programs listed with them. So if you need help, you could call them. So if there's something similar in your city, that's I think that's your first place to go. Or there's also there's always NA Narcotics Anonymous. That's a great start. People will be able to direct you in the right place there. Alcoholics Anonymous, any rehab centers, they'll all be able to help you. Stephanie Bertrand has been with us, telling us her story as a functioning addict. Stephanie, thanks so much for sharing the story. Very courageous. Good luck to you moving forward. All right, thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Stephanie. And, of course, uh, you can read the article on our website. I was a functioning addict. Windsor mom survives opioid addiction, finds hope in helping others. Emanuela Campanella, uh, multimedia journalist for uh, uh, Global News, of course. You will find that on our website at 900chml.com. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.